instrumental, poem, whole thing, I think I got it on. So we appreciate that. Let's grab our Bibles, open up to Joshua chapter 13. And uh, before we get started in the study, let's pray and uh, commit this time of preaching to the, to the Lord as we continue this series of building a battle-ready faith. Father God, we're just uh, so grateful for the, um, this morning that you've given us, the fact that we can come and worship you. And God, now as we look into your word, we pray that you would uh, use it to strengthen, challenge us, uh, to build us in the faith, to grow us according to your will and plan. May the Holy Spirit be free to work in our hearts this morning, God. Keep our eyes and our ears open spiritually to hear what you would have us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know uh, if you, if you uh, look at this in the bulletin or not, but you, you may have noticed that the text for this morning's message is uh, seven chapters long. And, uh, and so I, I hope you're all prepared to stay till I don't know, about supper time. No, just kidding, right? The bulk, the bulk of these chapters, 13 through uh, 19, primarily give us a bunch of details about the promised land as it was divided up between the 12 tribes. Now, again, you hear that phrase, the 12 tribes frequently from, from Genesis all the way through Revelation because that's just another way of referring to the nation of Israel. But technically, there were 13 tribes. However, only 12 got their own territories as Joshua was dividing it up here. Uh, and so I thought I'd take a minute to explain that just so as you're reading the, uh, the Bible, uh, this all makes more sense to you. So God originally gave this promise for this land to Abraham, right? And Abraham traveled there by faith and he lived in the land as, as a nomadic wanderer, but he never actually possessed the land as his own, not any of it except for one small portion that he bought as a burial site for his beloved wife, Sarah. So basically, he was living in this land as a pilgrim, or if you wanted to take it from the perspective of the current residents, he was living there as kind of a squatter. But it was a promise given to him from God. And so God uh, promised that to Abraham. It was then passed on to Isaac, his son. And from Isaac, it was passed on to his son, Jacob. And and Jacob, after a, a wrestling match with God where he got his hip dislocated, was then renamed by God from Jacob to Israel. And and so that's, of course, where the name of the country uh, gets its name. Israel literally means one who strives with God. That's that's, uh, uh, what that word means. So now Jacob, or Israel, he had 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And each of those 12 sons and the descendants that came from them, they were the heads and the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of them except Joseph. There is no tribe of Joseph ever listed in the Bible. Remember, it was in a fit of jealousy that his brothers sold him as a slave and he was carted off to Egypt and and, and put in slave in Egypt. And and there, because he was faithful and and trusted God, he rose to a a, a position of power and influence that was, was only second in command to Pharaoh himself and, and long story short, to save his family from a severe famine. He invited them all down to Egypt to live with him in Egypt where he had stored up plenty of grain and they uh, overstayed their welcome 
and ended up becoming slaves and spent the next 400 years there in bondage uh, as slavery to, to Egypt. But, but back to Joseph, Joseph was given a wife by Pharaoh. So he had an Egyptian wife, and from his union with her, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And just before Jacob, Israel, died, he called Joseph and those two sons into him, and he claimed those two sons as his own. They're no longer your sons, they're mine, and he made them, uh, gave them equal footing with the rest of his sons. And so you take away one, Joseph, from the original 12, you add the two sons, uh, and now you've got 13. However, the Bible always talks about the 12 tribes of Israel, not 13. Well, why would that be? Well, the main reason for that is because of the special status of the tribe of Levi. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he had declared that every firstborn son, every firstborn male child from every family was to be dedicated to him and belonged to him. And that firstborn son then could act as a a, a family priest. However, in in preparation for gaining their own land and and becoming the country and their own nation, God determined to institutionalize and organize uh, the worship service. So it would now be centered around the tabernacle and uh, and, and then uh, specific rituals and, and, and performances would be attached to that. So that's why we read back in Numbers uh, 3, verse 12, God said, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb from among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. So the, the picture is, instead of the firstborn male from every family, from every tribe all over the country coming together to create the priesthood, God says, instead of doing that, the firstborn gets to stay with every family, but the entire tribe of Levi, they will be my possession. They will be the ones that will be my priests and, and will serve me. And because of that special status as priests uh, and, and serving all of the people, they would not get a territory of their own. Instead, they were given a few cities scattered uh, amongst the nation, so they would have you know, some land for growing crops and, and pasturing their animals, but no territory of their own. They dwelt scattered amongst the other 12 tribes so they could minister to them. And so then that's why we read at the beginning of, of this section here in Joshua, where Joshua is dividing up the land between the tribes, uh, in, in chapter 13 it says, Only to the tribe of Levi he did not give an inheritance. The offerings of fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to them. So because Levi belonged to God in that special sense, they were not counted as one of the 12 tribes. They would not get their own uh, allotment of land because God would be their inheritance. And the privilege of serving him in the tabernacle and then later on when the temple was built in, in the temple, that would be their legacy. So anyways, that brings us back down to 12 tribes. That's why you, you read about it that way. Okay, so now... Starting in chapter 13 of Joshua and going all the way through the end of chapter 19, we get all the details about the division of the land into all these different territories, 12 different territories for the 12 tribes. And, and each tribe was going to receive their territory uh, by God through the casting of lots. And that means 
for the bulk of these seven chapters, we get a lot of verses that describe the territory, specifically the borders, all the way around the territory. And so we, you, you can read through this section a whole bunch of verses such as, their south border was from the lower end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that turns to the south. Then it proceeded southward to the ascent of Akrabim and continued to Zin, and then went up from the south of Kadesh Barnea and continued to Hezron, and then went up to Adar and turned about at Karka, and it continued to Asma and proceeded to the brook of Egypt at the border it ended at the sea. This shall be your south border. And that's just one border for one of the twelve tribes. Want me to keep reading? Yeah, okay. Then, on top of that, Within every border, you get a listing, just a listing of all the cities and the towns that would belong to each tribe, or at least the towns big enough to be worth mentioning. So that means you get to read a whole bunch of super exciting verses like, Now the cities at the extremity of the tribe of the sons of Judah towards the border of Edom in the south were Kabzil and Edar and Jagger and Kinnah and Dimerah and Adara and on and on and on and on. It goes... <laughs> for 40 more verses for just that one tribe. And we got 12 of them to go through. So even the most stout-hearted of readers can become a little bleary-eyed going through this section. I mean, have any of you ever attempted to read through the Bible? Maybe got one of those reading plans, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you know you're doing pretty good, and then you hit this section. And your eyes kind of start glazing over and you're thinking, can I skip this? Well, I feel guilty if I skip it, if I don't read every name of every city. And, you're, you're, and it just kind of derails your whole reading plan. But you know, if we, if we would try to think of this from the perspective of the Israelites, it really is exhilarating stuff. I mean, think of it this way. For generations, generations, going back four centuries, the promise of God was that they would get their own land. And that promise had been embedded into the heart of every single Jew. So you can picture them as slaves, trudging and toiling through the, the heat and the work of the days. And in their hearts, they're thinking, someday, someday, we'll have our own place. Well, now that place, that, that dream, that hope that they had been carrying in their hearts for so long, it was coming true. So this wasn't just some boring survey to them. This was an official document stating that the promise had finally been fulfilled. They were receiving the inheritance that had been pledged to them so long ago. Now, more than that, this passage has a purpose for us. You remember the promise of 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for, correction, uh, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All Scripture. So that means even listings like this, this borders and, and, and the cities and all that, is profitable for us. Now, it won't necessarily have the same emotional impact for us that it would have had for those Jews back then. But as we would read verses like this, it should be a clear reminder to us that God is a God who keeps His promises. 
even those promises that are a long time in coming. I mean, these verses spell out the physical, tangible, literal fulfillment of what God said that He would do for them. God is faithful. As you read through each border description, you think to yourself, God is faithful. So in the same way, for us today, we need to keep in mind that this world is not our home. We are yet waiting for our inheritance. And ours is not a a territory with borders that are marked out by rocks and rivers and, and, and seas and this type of things. Our inheritance is described this way by Peter when it says we are set to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And you know when Jesus promised that he was going to prepare a place for us? These seven chapters of detailed surveying notes in Joshua remind us that someday we can count on the fact that just like those Jews, we will be able to stand and measure out the physical, tangible, literal fulfillment of God's promises to us. That day is coming. And like those Jews, we need to hold that in our heart and be ready and excited for that time. I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to that day. So now let's, let's get back to Joshua here. While, like I said, the bulk of these chapters are, are these survey notes, uh, listing of cities and all that kind of stuff, there are a few short stories mixed in. And one of them is what I want to focus on uh, for the rest of the message today. There, there's only one exception uh, to people getting their territory by lot, and that is Caleb. Several years ago, I, I did in church a, a short series of what I called the hidden heroes of the Bible. Uh, these were, were guys that only showed up maybe once or twice in, in Scripture, just a, a quick statement, but they were obviously uh, integral and, and important parts of the, of, of the early church and, and the ministry and the work that God was doing there, the mission that God was carrying on. Guys like Epaphras and Tychicus and a few like that we did. Well, Caleb, he could almost fit in that category, although he shows up a little bit more often than, than those guys do. But Caleb is really largely overshadowed by Moses and Joshua. We don't hear a whole lot about him. So today I just want to do a quick study of his life. The very first time that he shows up in scriptures is in Numbers 13. And for that, he's just part of a list of names where it says, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. But this list of names is significant. See, after Moses led the people out of bondage in Egypt, he took them to Mount Sinai, right? That's where they received the Ten Commandments, but that's also where they received all the rest of the laws that would guide them and and regulate them as a nation, and and they received the plans for and built the tabernacle, and all that kind of stuff took place there. So about two years after they came out of Egypt, they spent there at Sinai, they finally then traveled and made it to the southern border of the Promised Land, this place that God was taking them, a place called the Wilderness of Paran. And at that point, God gave very 
specific instructions to Moses. He said, send out for yourselves men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send out a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Well, Caleb, as we just read earlier in the list, he was the man chosen from the tribe of Judah. So that tells us that he was a leader among his tribe. He was a well-respected man. Uh, Verse 3 tells us that all of these chosen spies were actually heads of the sons of Israel, meaning that they had official positions of responsibility and leadership within their tribes. And so this was not something for super young men uh, to go do. In fact, as you keep reading about Caleb, you find out he was 40 years old at this time. But also keep in mind, they were preparing for this incredible, incursion, this invasion into the promised land. Uh, And and so uh, that meant that these 12 men were very likely uh, extremely tough, physical, uh, physically fit, strong men. Uh, Joshua was also one of the 12 spies uh, chosen, and we know what kind of, uh, uh, of man he was. So the fact that Caleb was selected, that tells us something about his character and his position in the tribe of Judah. But there's actually more to the story than that. It gets, it gets a little more interesting and deeper than that. In Numbers 32.12, we read this, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. The, the Kenizzite. Well, if he's from Judah, shouldn't he be called the Judahite? Who are the Kenizzites? Well, if you go clear back in Genesis 15 to when Abraham had finally traveled to the promised land and he was there now and God came back to him and reaffirmed his promises and I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to give you this land for, the, for your inheritance and this type of thing. And then what God did was gave a list of the peoples that were living in the Canaan land that, that were set up for judgment by him and would be, would be kicked out and driven out of the land. And you have, you know, the Canaanites and, and, and the Amorites and among them, the Kenizzites. The Kenizzites. So Caleb, a Kenizzite? That means that somehow, somewhere, one of Caleb's ancestors from Canaan land, from the pagans out of that country, had to have attached themselves to the people of Israel so that eventually Caleb was born into the tribe of Judah born as a slave. He was not a pure-blooded Jew, but he was so committed in his devotion to God that he rose to become a leader and a head of the tribe of Judah. I think that's just another reminder to us that you know, God has always been a God about drawing all people to himself, not just the Jewish nation, And that when you come to God, you are on equal footing with every other believer. And I don't know, and none of us know, all the details about Caleb's ancestry. I don't know what they are, but I would like to know what that backstory is, right? I mean, wouldn't you like to find out how how did that all happen? You know, it's not like a Kenizzite would have come down to Egypt, seen all the the Jews uh, in bondage and slavery, slavery toiling away and said, Hey, can I join up with you guys? How did this happen? Somewhere down the line it did, but 
I think it's interesting and fascinating that it is. So that's his Caleb. This is who he is. One of the, he and the other 11 spies then were given instructions on how they were supposed to spy out. And just the southern part of the land was all they were going into in the hill country there. They were to bring back a report about the condition of the land, the quality of the land, uh, the quality of the fruit and produce and all that kind of stuff. Some samples of that they were supposed to bring back. But they were also supposed to gauge the strength of the people and the fortifications of their cities. And all 12 spies came back with just a glowing report about the quality of the land. And they brought back samples of the produce and they marveled at the excellence of the grapes and the pomegranates and other things that they had brought back. But then some of the spies began talking about the incredible strength of the people that lived there and how powerfully fortified their cities were and and that this was not going to be something they were going to be able to do. And and all the people of Israel began to moan and murmur and complain. And it's at that point that it says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. But the rest of the spies, except for Joshua, jumped all over Caleb for for saying that. And they were saying, oh man, there is no way that we can do it. The, The people are too strong. The cities are these formidable bastions. And besides that, there are giants in the land, descendants of the Nephilim, the sons of Anak that were living in the hill country. Uh, Years later, Goliath would be a descendant from, from these giant people. Well, that information, well, that it just sent the masses over the edge. I mean, giants were the last thing they wanted to hear about. And, and so they began to wail and moan and said, I, okay, absolutely not. There's no way we can do this. In fact, they were at the point they were going to kick out Moses and select a new leader, and we're just heading back to Egypt. And, and in that commotion, Joshua and Caleb, it says, tore their clothes, which is a great symbol of distress. And, and, and then it says, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So how did all the congregation of the people respond to this bit of encouragement? It says they decided to stone Caleb and Joshua, and they're picking up stones to kill them. And, and Caleb's story would have probably ended right there had God not chosen that moment to step in and, and change things, and, and he did. Now, you know, the interesting thing to me is these 12 spies... They all came back with the exact same information. They all saw the goodness of the land. They all witnessed the same strength of the people and and their cities. And they all knew about the giants. So what's the difference between the attitude of the ten and that of Caleb and Joshua? Well, the answer, of course, is in where they were focused. 
The 10 that brought back the bad report were focused on the obstacles against them, right? They saw the might of the enemies, the strength of the fortified cities, the power of the giants, and it caused them to fear and tremble and then therefore to ultimately reject doing what God had told them to do. But Caleb, he on the other hand, even though he saw all those same obstacles, he chose to focus on what God could do not upon the difficulties. He knew that God was with them and that God would be the one to remove the people from the land. It was not going to be dependent upon their military acumen or their strength or their abilities. It was about believing God and then acting on what God had said by faith. That's the difference. They were all in the exact same circumstances. The difference is where their eyes were. So, of course, the obvious question for us today, right? Where is my focus? If your eyes are on the problems, on the roadblocks, on the seeming strength and power of the enemy, well, then guess what? Chances are good you're going to be in a position of fear and discouragement, trembling and dismay, and your lack of faith will then inhibit you from fully obeying God. But if your focus is on the promise and the power of God and what He said He will do, then there is nothing that can stop you which is exactly what Caleb believed and what he found out, right? There's nothing that could stop him. And because he had that heart and attitude, God took the whole nation, those 10 spies, and the whole nation that was following them, and and that's when he uh, passed his judgment upon them and said, okay, now you're going to wander out in the wilderness for 40 years until this unbelieving generation dies off, except for Caleb and, and Joshua. And God gave Caleb, because of his strong faith, this personal promise. He said, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. So now, fast forward about 45 years. He had 40 years wandering around in the wilderness or almost 40 years and and then seven years or about seven years of warfare and now Caleb is 85 years old. 85 years old. The warfare, the main part of the warfare of taking over the promised land had been finished as a unified whole. All 12 tribes working together, they had uh, conquered and subdued all of the major powers within the promised land. However, throughout the promised land, there were still numerous pockets of, of residents and people living all over the territory that God said these people needed to be driven out. And so now each tribe, as they were given their territory, was also then given the responsibility of clearing out your territory, driving out the rest uh, uh, of these people. And and, um, so that meant there was a little bit more warfare, but it would be for each individual tribe. And it's at that point, it's at that point that Caleb marches up to Joshua and he rehashes the story of what happened back in those spying days and the bad experience they had with, with those guys. And he reminds him of the promise that God had given to him through Moses. And then he said this, 
I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Mo- that day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. So can you imagine that? 85 years old and being as strong and physically fit as you were at 40. I know, you know, for the kids here, they think 40 is ancient and decrepit and, and, and weak here. But it's not. Trust me, it's not. But you know, it's, it's more than just the physical that impresses us here. I mean, you've got to love Caleb's heart and attitude. I mean, look what he says next to Joshua. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord has spoken on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. The Anakim, that's the giants. The ones who had made the other ten spies and the whole nation quiver and tremble with fear. This was their home. And Caleb, at 85 years old, is saying, let me at them. Let me have them. Give me this land. You tell, give me the go-ahead and we're on our way. He knew that by God's help, whether it was, he was 40 or 85, they would be driven from the land. So now if there is just one thing, just one thing that we could identify about Caleb that made him that kind of man, that made him successful, one thing that makes him stand out as a hero of the faith. One thing that allowed him to stand in the face of great opposition and giants and be bold and live an adventurous, risk-taking, godly life. What would that one thing be? Well, I think we can find it in the way Joshua assessed his life. Check it out. Joshua, so Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now that, that little phrase, uh, until this day, it lets, uh, lets us know that Caleb did go into the whole country and take it and drive everyone else like he was supposed to, but it's that final phrase, right? That sets him apart. Because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. You know, Caleb only shows up in three different episodes in the Bible, all very brief. But six different times it is said of him, he followed God fully. And that word fully can be translated as completely, wholly, wholeheartedly. And it means exactly what you would expect it to mean. Holding nothing back, without reserve, no hedging, no compromise, no waffling. How did he do it? Well, he had determined that no matter what, he was going to follow God. And that meant two simple things. Believing, trusting what God said, and therefore acting on what he said. Very simple, right? Now, simple to understand, but a commitment to do. Believing what God said, and therefore acting based on what He said. There's giants in the land. Doesn't matter, I'm trusting God. They have huge fortified cities. Doesn't matter, God said He will drive them out. To follow God fully 
means taking God at His word and living that way. And you know what? You and I can do the same thing Caleb did and live a life of bold, heroic faith just like he did. So who wants in on that deal? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the example of the life of Caleb. He was a man just like us, with fears, with doubts, with weaknesses, with failures. And yet because he chose to trust God, we see that he acted in faith. And we remember who he is because of that. God, we want to have lives that impact people, that change family dynamics, that change communities, that are willing to take a risk and be bold and adventurous in our faith. So God, give us hearts like Caleb where it could be said of us that we fully trusted the God of Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.